Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Studio 1.0 podcast straight from the tech team at Bloomberg News. I'm Emily Chang. I'm here with Brad Stone, our global head of tech here at Bloomberg. Brad, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Emily. This episode, I want to talk to you about Peter Thiel, the legendary entrepreneur and investor, a polarizing and sometimes controversial visionary. He started six of his own funds. He co-founded PayPal, co-founded Palantir. He's backed Elon Musk and SpaceX. And here we're going to get a glimpse of where he's investing next. He, of course, has his venture capital firm, Founders Fund, where they're focused on earlier stage investments. And their motto is, we wanted flying cars. Instead, we got 140 characters, which is a bit of a dig at Twitter. Well, thanks to Peter Thiel, we might get flying cars sooner rather than later. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if he's got an investment there as well. So you actually met Peter Thiel like 15 years ago. In yeah, Valley. yeah, yeah. 2000, I remember uh, visiting early PayPal and seeing him hunched over in his cubicle right at, right at the beginning of his uh, journey as a tech entrepreneur and investor. Now, he's just gotten back from China, fast forward 16 years, and he was teaching a class there for two weeks about his book, Zero to One, which is all about building and scaling companies. And uh, we started off by talking about that trip because it was, I believe, his, his longest trip ever to China. And Something surprised him, which was how competitive the culture is. I got the sense from listening to this interview that he was deeply impressed by what he saw in China. Um, the competitiveness of the tech environment, the intensity. You know, he, he's a famous uh, uh, skeptic when it comes to higher education. And, you know, we, to hear him talk about the nationwide tests that they administer uh, and we're only really, the, you know, the, the people that perform the best get into the top universities. Um, you know, the world thinks about the China tech ecosystem as copying what we do here in America. And he makes the point uh, when you guys talk, Emily, that China does not view itself in that way. They do not want to be Japan. And they the next wave of innovation that comes out of China will be deeply original. It's interesting. I lived in China from 2008 to 2010, and then I just went back last November to speak to Jack Ma at Alibaba. We also stopped by Xiaomi. We talked to Hugo Barra. And we hear so much about the explosion of the Chinese tech scene, but it's difficult from here in the United States to get a sense of just how mature the tech scene is there. I know you've been to China recently. You went to Xiaomi. Um, you know, what was your impression? The you know, they have a set of giants there that are in some ways just as compelling and, and uh, mysterious as, as the giants we have here. You know, we talk here about Amazon and Google and Facebook and Apple, and there they have Xiaomi and Baidu and Tencent and Alibaba. And these these are companies that kind of warp the gravity in, in the China business uh, environment. I mean, I think just this week, Jack Ma became by orders of magnitude the wealthiest man in Asia, right? And uh, um, and, you know, a lot of the startups, maybe it's a little different there because a lot of the successful startups seem to grow up in one of these ecosystems. Now, um, we talk a lot about a bubble, and it'll be interesting to see how the market plays out in China and the tech market in China versus the tech market here in the United States. But in this interview, Peter Thiel right off says, I don't think there's a bubble in tech. If there's a bubble, it's everywhere. It's in housing prices. It's across the board. It infuses everything. And that single quote... Actually, we wrote it up in a Bloomberg News story, and that ended up on Drudge Report. 
Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I feel like a lot of the discussion about a bubble in Silicon Valley gets kind of sensationalized. And Peter Thiel has such an intimate knowledge of how the tech ecosystem in Silicon Valley works. And so he makes two points. One, that there's really no public bubble, like unlike 2000, 2001. Public investors have not been able to invest in this round of technology startups. And then number two, I mean, we all point to the companies that get the down rounds, the markdowns, some that go out of business. But he, as he points out in your interview, Emily, that's kind of the nature of business here, that there are going to be many failures, and it's the one or two in his portfolio was a Facebook um, or a SpaceX that end up kind of justifying the whole endeavor. And that's what he talks about here is going out and looking for that one or two company that's going to make it all worthwhile. He also talks about the end of globalization in this interview. Uh, one of the most uh, Interesting parts of it, though, I think, is his uh, discussion of politics. He's known for being a libertarian who backs Republican candidates. In prior years, he's given money to Ted Cruz. He's given money to Carly Fiorina. But nobody knows who he's backing this time or if he uh, will continue to give money in, in what has become a very uh, unexpected, let's say, election cycle. Yeah, he makes a pretty provocative comment that I won't spoil. But uh, he, he kind of mentions what he would do if he were involved in this election cycle, and it is not very optimistic. All right, let's take a listen to Peter Thiel, famed entrepreneur and investor. We spoke at the Lendit conference in San Francisco, a conference focused on lending and fintech. The room was packed with hundreds and hundreds of people, and they were riveted. Take a listen. Peter, thank you so much for, for being here today. It's great to have you and great to be able to speak with you. Um, I know you just got back from China. You taught a class there uh, about some of the stuff that you were just speaking about. This was a longer stay for you in China, and I'm curious about what surprised you on this trip? Well, there's always, uh, there's always a lot of different impressions. There's always a lot of different impressions you get. Uh, it's, uh, and I'm not sure I was surprised, but the intensity in China is, uh, is incredible. There is, um, there's a tremendous amount happening. It's, um, it's also ferociously competitive, which, I, which always uh, maybe um, doesn't surprise me so much as it scares me a little bit as both an investor and would scare me as an entrepreneur. So uh, you have people who are incredibly motivated, um, and um, and then um, and then a lot of it gets channeled into sort of very hyper competitive context. So I was I was teaching at uh, this mini course at Tsinghua University, where um, it's sort of they have a nationwide test. Ten million students a year take the test, and basically the best. Uh, you know, 4,000 go to Tsinghua or, or Beijing University. So, uh, so it's sort of, uh, and that's sort of a template for how, how, how so much there works. Um, there's obviously, uh, um, a, there's a, you know, my, my book Zero to One did extremely well in China. It sold uh, more copies in China than the rest of the world combined. Really? And, um, and so there is this uh, tremendous uh, interest in this question of globalization and technology that I alluded to uh, towards the end of my talk, where China's been the single country that benefited the most from globalization over the last 30, 35 years. But in the uh, 2012 um, uh, sort of People's Congress statement, they sort of issued that once every five years, um, one of the um, sort of interesting things that was said was they thought the globalization trend was coming to an end. And, uh, and so this is a very, and so that meant that you know, China has to somehow shift from export-orientated economy towards, uh, towards more of a consumer economy, towards more, um, 
more, um, and then, uh, and of course, this question of uh, technological growth is also much more important. And so, even though there's a bias that China can just copy, doesn't have to do anything new, uh, and can maybe start innovating 20, 30 years from now that it has, still has 20 or 30 years of copying to do, that's not a bias people in China have. They actually think, you know, maybe we have to start um, innovating. We don't want to be like Japan, where it's copied successfully for many decades, but then hit a wall and wasn't able to, to pivot towards innovation. The markets in China have been extremely volatile, and there's concern about a broader downturn. You know, what, what are you most optimistic about, but, and what gives you the most cause for concern? Well, um, well, I am I am somewhat concerned about the you know the frothiness of, of the markets. I'd say not just in China, but but everywhere that you know we've had uh, we've had uh, this. Uh, I, I don't think the if there's a bubble today, um, I don't think the bubble is centered on technology, hmm. um, uh, neither in China nor nor in the U.S. I think um, I think bubbles are psychosocial phenomena. Um, you know, we got the public. You have to get the public involved in a in a crazy way. Um, you know, in the 90s, we had in 1999, we had 300 tech IPOs in the U.S. In 2015, there may be 15 or 20 tech IPOs, depending on how you count them. Um, so the public has not been involved in um, in the tech boom this time around. Um, a little bit more in China, not at all in the U.S. So I think there is no bubble centered on technology. Hmm. If there's a bubble. It's probably at this point centered on the zero percent interest rates, the quantitative easing, the money printing, hmm. and um, and that's a very strange one because that's one that permeates everything. So that uh, yeah, startup tech stocks may be overvalued, but so are public equities, so are houses, so are government bonds because uh, that sort of touches everything. Um, and in some ways, I, I w I've actually argued that in some ways Silicon Valley is quite far from it because if the bubble is in cash. Uh, the things that are very far from cash, say illiquid startup investments, may be actually a place to hide. On that note, you've predicted a, a broader sort of economic collapse or that the economy will break after this year and that whoever is elected president will be a one-term president. Do you still believe that? Well, you don't want to be too dramatic and too precise in making predictions. <laughs> That's always dangerous to do. But um, it's, it's at least a good excuse for uh, trying not to get too involved or supporting any of the candidates. Um, I, think, um, I think that, uh, I think, I, uh, yes, I think there are probably, uh, it, it does feel like a fairly crazy election. I suspect there are a lot of strange issues that are being pushed under the rug and uh, that will, will emerge as, as, uh, as challenges. I think there, are, there certainly are a lot of challenges we have. You know, the Trump-Sanders phenomena suggests that, uh, that uh, you know, I think voters are angry, and of course, uh, maybe not just angry, because maybe they have some good things to be angry about, that we have trade policies, immigration policies, a corrupt government that doesn't quite uh, do, do uh, what it's supposed to, and a political class that's been, been very disconnected, generally stagnant, lack of growth. So I think there are a lot of challenges like that that it would be uh, it would be good for people to address, but we haven't been addressing for some time. I wasn't going to get here this early, but since we're, we're on this topic, you're, you're known for being a libertarian who sometimes backs Republican candidates. You've given money to Fiorina mm -hmm. and Cruz in the past. Will you give money more more money this cycle? Who are you supporting? Well, I'm gonna no, I'm gonna try to really stay out of it. So for the re <laughs> no, I, th I think look, I think it's it's uh, it's uh, it's always politics is always uh, it always seems very important. 
uh, and it always seems very counterproductive. Hmm. So uh, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's like the air we breathe, it permeates a lot in our society, and then uh, it's just a way to get people really angry and polarized, and, uh, and so I find it always, I find political philosophy interesting, I think there are a lot of these, these fundamental questions that are you know, uh, really interesting and important. And then, um, if I um, if I was involved in it, I think I would just uh, I would just blow my brains out or something. It's just you just it would just go crazy after a while. So uh, so, um, so I, think I, I think I think I, I you know the thing the thing I like so much more about the tech industry that I like about Silicon Valley versus DC is there is a sense of agency. Um, it feels like you can actually do something. It's maybe it's on a smaller scale, but. Uh, but I think this is where um, people cumulatively will make a much bigger difference in, in uh, solving various problems, changing our society, et cetera, et cetera, even though you know, there probably are some problems that can't be solved. Not every problem can be solved by startups, but um, it's a place where people can solve problems. And then um, many of the problems that can't be solved by startups, I, I worry, are just not going to get solved at all. So it's interesting, you know, startup, the number of startup deals dropped to its lowest level in four years. How does this cycle play out? How many unicorns are really unicorns? Well, it's, it's uh, certainly when we, you know, certainly um, uh, there's, there's always all, all these different ways of, of, of measuring this. Uh, you know, we've been able to still raise a lot more capital for, um, for Founders Fund, for Mithril, the two, two major funds that I, I work with. Uh, and so there seems to be um, no real decrease in the underlying investor appetite for, uh, for venture capital funds. Um, and, uh, and I think there still, is, uh, there still has been, you know, the amount that's been raised in aggregate hasn't gone down that much. So, so I, think, I, think it, you know, I think it keeps going for, for quite a while. Um, obviously, uh, you know, when we looked at our portf overall portfolio, uh, uh, I think that uh, we keep thinking that the the aggregate portfolio is um, is if anything not um, not overvalued because uh, a few of the companies are doing really well and are still not um, not fully valued uh, but it is you know it, it is a it, venture capital um, and entrepreneurship have this uh, sort of disturbingly unequal set of outcomes um, you know one of the rules of thumb in venture is that your best investment for a fund um, will often end up being as valuable as all your other investments combined and um, and that's that's um, it's it's disturbing that it's that 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 the disparities are are that big, um, and um, you know if you were the hundredth employee at Google, you would have done far better um, than if you were the founder CEO of a Series A venture backed the average Series A venture backed startup in Silicon Valley, and so uh, you know um, and so the the questions end up becoming very important. Um, what are the right companies? Um, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, as, as an investor, as an early employee, what are the right companies to join? Um, this is a much more important uh, question than what specifically are you doing. Mm -hmm. and this is very different from a professional context where if you're a lawyer or investment banker, it's sort of like what's your role, how much do you get paid? Those are the important questions. In the, in the startup context, the variable that dominates is, is um, you know, is the right company. You would have been better off answering telephones at Google than uh, being a, a senior vice president at uh, Webvan or some, something like that. So, um, so I think this. Um, so I think that's it's sort of very different from from the way uh, from the way people uh, people often think about it. And so when you ask the general question, you know, how many unicorns will be left, or what's going to happen in this general context, uh, I think um, 
I think the, uh, the, um, the, the real question is, you know, what's going to be the next company that will be on the scale of a Google or a Facebook? Or, you know, will, will some of these companies still get to be a lot bigger over time? If they succeed, I think we'll end up having a very successful ecosystem as a whole. Um, and then, if, if not, we, we'll, be, we'll be in trouble. If you look at, you know, I, 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 um, I, I, I occasionally go speak in Germany, you know, I'm fluent in German, and, um, and there's always this question, what can we do to make it more like Silicon Valley? And we have thousands of startups in Berlin, mm -hmm. and there are all these people starting companies. And um, it's not really a numbers game. It's you need, you know, you need a few that really succeed, because that's what's going to ultimately change, that's, that's what's going to create thousands of jobs, that's what's, what's going to create, you know, billions in uh, revenues, and you know, billions in profits, tens of billions in revenues over time. Um, and that's what you really need. You don't need um, thousands of startups per se. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. So Founders Fund just raised $1.3 billion, your sixth fund. You've backed Facebook, you've backed Lyft, you've backed SpaceX, Palantir, the company that you co-founded. Mm -hmm. How are you going to invest that money differently this cycle? What are you optimistic about now what are you pessimistic about now? Well, I'll start with a big caveat that I, I'm, um, I'm nervous about saying anything about trends. Um, so I, I, and so we're always tempted to ask these sorts of trend-related questions. And you know, at the margins, um, there, there's certainly things we want to be more open to. So I think uh, at the margins, um, the correct thing has been to focus very heavily on Silicon Valley for the last 10, 15 years. And I keep wondering whether maybe we should uh, try to look at some places outside Silicon Valley. Um, and then, of course, you have to travel a crazy amount to do that, which is why most of the venture capitalists don't really want to do it. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so there's always this question, should we be doing th more things in, in, um, in, some, in some other places? And is there some point where the cost of living and things like that gets so prohibitive in Silicon Valley mm. that, uh, that it actually uh, makes sense to... Um, to, um, to, to look at things outside here, or are the network effects here still just so powerful they dominate everything? For, you know, the last 15 years, the network effects have dominated, uh, and then maybe there's some point where it shifts. So that's a question we're, you know, we're looking at. Uh, we are, we're certainly, um, you know, sectorally, uh, I, th I, I do think, uh, you know, two-thirds, three-quarters will be next generation, IT, consumer internet, you know, we've done a lot in, in, in various forms in fintech over mm -hmm. the years, uh, software, enterprise software, all these kinds of categories will, will, uh, will continue to be big. And then, and then we're going to continue to try to do things in all these uh, non-IT areas. So we've done some things in biotech, uh, rockets with Elon, SpaceX company. Uh, and there's some very big challenges in investing in those areas, uh, but they, they tend to be you know, fairly contrarian, fairly underexplored. So we want to be very open to looking at those as well. Uh, on but, fintech, uh, but no, no categorical rules. You okay. know, it's basically, it's basically. Look, if I come back to my power law that you need your best investment to return your fund, um, that's that's such a hard thing to do. That um, that's rule number one. You mm -hmm. need your best investment to return your fund. Rule number two is there can be no other rules, because uh, you, you can't you can't restrict your geography, your um, stage, your sector. You want to be flexible in everything else. When it comes to fintech, you have been investing abroad. You've invested in Germany, in the UK. What are you seeing outside the U.S. that you're not seeing here? Um, well, it's uh, there are. Um, I, 
we, we found I mean, we found some good companies both outside um, and in, in the U.S. You know, we've invested in SoFi and Avant and um, earlier investors in OnDeck in the U.S. So we've we've invested both in inside and outside uh, the U.S. in these areas. We're very big investors in Stripe here in in, um, in San Francisco. Um, but I think uh, I think there are always these these specific uh, business model questions that are that are um, that are uh, that can vary quite a bit. So one of one of the companies we recently invested in is New Bank, um, sort of a lending um, credit business in Brazil, and um, we on some level um, we like that business model better than comparable ones in the U.S. because um, Brazil is a much smaller market. Uh, you can get to scale. You can take over that market much more naturally than a business doing something very similar would be able to do in the U.S. So, uh, so um, the the U.S. advantage is that if you get something to work, you have a bigger market. Um, in, in in many uh, parts outside the U.S., you start with smaller markets, and so um, it may not get to be quite as big. But if you can take over a market. It's easier to get to the point where you take over a market. You know, uh, TransferWise started with remittance from London to, um, you know, the, the Baltic states. So these these okay these small, um, you know, two-way uh, remittance uh, kinds of uh, payment streams, and there's sort of various pairwise combinations that were quite small. But you you know within the respective communities you could get known, you could take over that market. Um, U.S. everything's sort of bigger. Um, it's a little bit harder to differentiate, and so uh, you have sort of a very different set of challenges. You just hired your first woman partner at Founders Fund, Cyan Bannister. What is your take on the continued lack of women in the venture capital industry? Why aren't there more? And, and what is the industry's responsibility? Well, uh, we all have a responsibility to, to do more. Uh, there is, uh, um, you know, I, I would say, well, we already had Lauren Gross as a, our COO at Founders Fund, so we, uh, we have two, in, two women in, in senior roles. But, uh, but, um, but look, we all need to be doing, we all need to be doing more. Um, it's, uh, I, I always think that uh, the context that this debate comes up in is that, uh, is that uh, the disparities are really big. So I'm not sure, you know, I don't know if it has to be 50-50, mm -hmm. I don't know if we have to have a quota, but uh, you have these really glaring disparities. And it, there's something about tech that matters a lot. It's not like, you know, there may be a huge male-female disparity in chess players or math professors, but that doesn't matter quite as much as the only industry that's really working in the U.S. And so you have, I think it's always in this broader context. And so when, when, when people uh, tell me that uh, Silicon Valley focuses on this too much, you know, this is what I tell them, that uh, it's because Silicon Valley matters so much and that the disparities are really big. I was looking at the, uh, the other day I was looking at the, uh, at the uh, unicorn list of 150 startups, and the um, um, I may have missed one or two, but by my by my count, only two of them had uh, uh, two out of 150 had women co-founders, and so if you're like 148 to two, that's a that's a crazy uh, crazy lack of uh, lack of balance. I think uh, we have to be aware there's this big problem, and it matters because Silicon Valley matters so much, and then we have all these questions: what to do about it. Um, I, you know, the one thing I would I would say is I, I always think that it's on the level of the founders of the companies that matter the most. So I think venture capitalists are important, you know, executives are important, getting more women into engineering roles, um, you know, in engineering tracks and universities are important. But uh, but what really defines the culture in Silicon Valley is not the executives or the venture capitalists. It's the company founders, and uh, that's probably the place where the disparity is the most extreme. 
And, um, and I don't know what you do about that, but that's, that's where it really needs to be fixed if you want to change things, if you want to change the culture. Um, Yahoo, a company that was once very important to Silicon Valley, in a week, Yahoo's accepting bids uh, to buy mm -hmm. all or, or a part of the company. You told me two years ago Yahoo isn't a tech company anymore. How do you see this playing out for Yahoo? What is the most plausible scenario? What has Yahoo become? Well, it's, it's, still, um, well, it's still a very big media company. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, and I, by, by the way, I think Marissa has done a terrific job there. It's just been an incredibly hard company to run. I think she's been by far the best CEO they've had in, uh, in, in you know, maybe ever. And uh, it's probably the best one they've ever had. You know, I think Jerry Yang was very good as sort of the, the founder CEO. And then I think Marissa was uh, far, far and away the best of all the other people they, they had as, as CEOs. And, uh, and so I think that, uh, you know, so I think it's in the context of how good Marissa was that uh, it's, it's like, well, if even Marissa can't fit, quite um, get this restarted, um, we're not going to hire somebody else. We ha you know, then, then the logic is if you already have the best person that you can get as CEO, then the logic if, is that if it's not working, maybe you look at some other, other possibilities. But uh, it's, in a very, it's a very difficult space where uh, you know, uh, there's always this um, old media, new media dynamic that's, uh, that's, that's quite tricky. And you know, if you're in the old media, you want to be in a place that's really old. So you want to be like doing radio or billboards, billboard advertising, or things, things that are so far away from new media that there's no competition at all. The, the parts of old media that were the most challenging were the ones that were somehow relatively close to new media. Newspapers and magazines felt very similar to the kinds of things you could read on the internet. And, um, and the challenges that, you know, Yahoo was a new media company in the 90s. At this point, it's actually more of an old media company, but it's old media uh, that's somehow still quite close to new media, which is, in a sense, I'd say the most challenging place to be. So structurally, it's just a very tough place. The Teal Fellows Program, you're five years in. 80 fellows or so have raised $140 million in venture capital. You're giving the commencement speech at Hamilton College this year. What are you going to say to those graduates? How have your views on education evolved through this process? Well, I have to be careful. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't say I have to be careful what I say there. We don't there, want you to give the speech away. But, yeah, but right. No, I, I think, look, I've, I've never said that there's a one-size-fits-all approach. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, people have characterized, mischaracterized my view is that everyone should drop out of college, everyone should start a company. I don't think everybody should be starting companies. Um, you know, for the, just given this power law thing, I think a lot of companies don't work. Uh, we need more people to start good companies. Um, but, uh, but I think also the sort of super-tracked dynamics have, um, have gotten us to, to a very bad place where, um, where education has become a substitute for thinking about the future. You know, um, and the K through 12 system is geared towards college. Um, and the problem is life doesn't end in college. You know, it, it, you know hopefully you live for you know, a long time after that and do many, uh, many things after college. And, um, and, um, and there's a strange way where you know, we live in a society where there's a lot of anxiety about the future. Um, and we've put more and more money into education for the last 35 years as a way of dealing with this anxiety where if you get into the right college, you know, you'll be saved. If you don't, 
you're in trouble. And I've, I've sort of described uh, the college, uh, the sort of dramatic version I've said is, you know, colleges, they're like, they're as corrupt as the Catholic Church was 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, they're sort wow. of charging people more and more. It's the system of indulgences. You have this priestly or professorial class that doesn't do very much work. And then, um, and then you basically tell people that uh, if you get a diploma, you're saved. You know, otherwise you go to hell. You know, you go to Yale or you go to jail. That's sort <laughs> of the, that's sort of, um, and, um, and what I think we need to, we need to push back um, on this, um, on this, that this, this idea that the only way you get saved is, you know, Catholic Church 500 years ago or today, the only way to get saved is by, uh, by getting a diploma from college. And I hope, I hope that in the future there will be um, many different kinds of uh, productive things for people to do. My goal with the Teal Fellowship was not to start a new church, a startup church or something like that. Uh, it's not to have this alternate one-size-fits-all thing, but I think the, the future system will be one that's uh, much more heterogeneous and where there will be many more ways for people to be successful. Maybe your flying cars will save us all. Again, I, I, think, <laughs> I think, look, I think it would be good to have flying, we have, you know, we have our tagline on our website, they promised us flying cars and all we got was 140 characters, not against Twitter, um, <laughs> uh, but, um, but, uh, but look, it's, uh, it would be good to have flying cars, it would be good to have many other things, uh, but there's no, you know, I, I, the claim is not that if we have flying cars, that's going to save us all. We, 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 do, we need to be doing more in many dimensions, including, you know, uh, repairing the, the entire uh, financial system from, from ground up. You've been listening to Peter Thiel, entrepreneur and investor, and uh, what you may have picked up there is that the crowd was going wild during his comments about education, comparing it to the Catholic Church. I love, I love that he says he has ago. to be careful what he says, <laughs> and that he believes his views have been mischaracterized. Right. Yet goes on. Yeah, to yeah. Rail people have mischaracterized him as saying that everyone should drop out of school. I'm pretty sure that uh, he has come close to saying that and has paid students to drop out of school and start companies. But yeah, he also ended up, despite the uh, attempt at uh, restraint, he ended up comparing it to the Catholic Church and uh, and and basically saying that those institutions, higher education institutions, are corrupt. But that's what makes Peter Thiel so great, is the fact that he, is, he says these controversial things with such conviction. Why do you think when he said that uh, go to Yale or go to jail, the audience there seemed to, seemed to go nuts? Why, why is that such a, a response line? I don't know, perhaps because we're in Silicon Valley, which is filled with iconoclasts, many of whom dropped out of school or wish that they did to start a company. I wonder if he's identified something, though, that there's a lot of anger that higher education institutions now are charging so much money that have done so well with their investments and, and, and that these are schools that are basically off limits to, you know, the 99%. And students saddled with college loan debt, uh, which can, you know, burden you for years and years. And now you have you know, a host of different education tech companies that are trying to uproot the system, but actually education technology has been a, a much more difficult area. Uh, we haven't seen a lot of success there yet. Well, he's optimistic though, right? He says that the future system will be more heterogeneous. I hope that's true for the sake of uh, my kids. Now, what did you make of his comments about Yahoo? I thought it interesting that he said, look, Marissa Meyer is the best CEO Yahoo has ever had, but that's saying something. If even she can't turn this around, maybe drastic action <laughs> needs to be had. Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, I think that saying that she was the best CEO that Yahoo's ever had, may, you know, in, in retrospect, ends up not 
actually saying much. I mean, look, I mean, you know, we can we can sit here and critique her performance. You know, from from my armchair, I think that like all those other CEOs, she didn't necessarily make a strong, hard choice about what Yahoo should be. You know, it, should it be a search company? Should it be a media company or an ad company? I mean, it, you know, she basically kind of suffered from the mistakes of her predecessors by trying to do all of it, not really slimming the company down as much as it should have or could have and probably will be soon in the future. And now we are in the throes of a sale process. They just scored... I guess you could call it a narrow victory against Starbird, the activist investor, which had been calling uh, to remove the entire board. Instead, they're adding four uh, directors to the board. Uh, But at this point, Brad, how do you expect the process to play out? Well, I mean, I think what Peter, you know, kind of put his finger on in the interview was that we are now in the midst of the end game, right? That the the core assets of Yahoo will be sold, perhaps to Verizon, perhaps to uh, another bidder. And we'll see the Asian assets unwind, and probably Marissa Meyer go on to for her next act. I, I just don't think, uh, as the last 10 years have shown, there's much of a future for the company, sadly. Now, Bloomberg has reported they got more than 10 bids. Uh, Verizon, YP, TPG. Verizon seems to be emerging as uh, one of the more, mo- more likely uh, candidates, but you know, we don't know what the substance of the bids are. But potentially valuing Yahoo at somewhere between 4 and $8 billion, which it's actually not bad. Well, considering that the market value uh, has been uh, at or near close to zero, it doesn't seem all that bad. All right, next week we'll be back with more. We will hear from Gary Vaynerchuk, the CEO of VaynerMedia and general social media mastermind. He built his business on Twitter. We'll get his thoughts on everything from Marissa Meyer's legacy to why he sees Snapchat as a threat to everything from television to magazines. And make sure you subscribe to the Studio 1.0 podcast. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And don't forget, leave us a rating. It'll help more listeners discover our content. Finally, a shout out to our editor, Aaron Black, our producer, Pia Godkari, and our whole technical crew. And thanks to Brad Stone, global head of tech at Bloomberg News, at Bradstone on Twitter. And keep following me. I'm at Emily Chang TV on Twitter. We'll see you next time. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry.